Romans chapter 8. Why don't we stand together? We're going to read the first 17 verses. Beginning in verse 1, Paul writes, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, and that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, On account of sin, he condemns sin in the flesh. That the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. So then those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Did you read that? So then those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Verse 9. But you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you, now if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. And if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Therefore, brethren, we're debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you're going to die. You will die. But if the spirit you put to to death, the deeds of the body, you will live. For as many as are led by the spirit of God, these are the son of God. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. Father, here we have before us these 17 verses that that are so imperative for us to understand. To live our Christian life, to live a life of victory, to live a life for you. One that is void of major frustration because we don't know what we're supposed to do. What we have before us are 17 verses that share with us what we are to do. And so, Lord, I pray that you enlighten our hearts and our minds, our spirits to what this word is saying to us today. Take me out of the way, God, that you would be seen. God, the words that you've laid on my heart to share today, may they come out in such a way that they impact every single one of our hearts. We walk out of this place understanding this passage, not just understanding it, but, but challenged and changed. And that we walk out of here with a newfound understanding of what it is that God wants to do in my life and how it is that he wants to go about it. 
be with us this day. Be with me as I share with your sheep, Lord. These are your sheep. These are your precious lambs. God, may your word go forth to comfort, to correct, to exhort, to encourage, to lead. God, may your word go forth and do what it was intended to do this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You may be seated. Up until we cracked open the book of Romans chapter 8, Paul presented before the court of his readers there of, of his letter to Romans, and that is what the letter of Romans is. It's a defense attorney's case being presented from chapters 1 through 16, how every man and every woman stands absolutely guilty before God. The only possible verdict that can be righteously rendered is one of standing guilty before a holy God. And the judgment is far worse than the death sentence of a prick in the arm to get a lethal injection or a date with old Sparky, the electric chair. But the judgment is not the execution in itself, but it is all about the moment after the execution. Ask yourself, when was the last time that you seriously thought and pondered about the moment after death? Maybe it was somebody close to you. Maybe it was a friend. Maybe it's something you heard on the internet, whatever. But have you thought about that moment? That moment right after you close your eyes for the last time. We spend billions of dollars in this country uh, advertising what you cannot live without in order to live a life to the fullest. It's an enticing Jaguar, Jaguar, or a Lexus commercial. Not to say if you have one of those that you're in sin. Not saying that. Or what phone do you sport? Have you noticed that phones have actually become their own religion? Just this, uh, about a week and a half ago, uh, I saw a guy lose his faith over his phone. Uh, he's in this room right now. His name's Bert. He, he left the Apple iPhone and he got a Samsung Galaxy. I don't know what that's all about. Left the faith. Maybe it's a certain place to eat. Maybe it's a certain cereal to buy. Or how about beer commercials? Beer commercials, isn't it funny that they have actually become the best of all commercials that we see? you got to have our item or you're missing out on a life worth living. That's what advertising, that's what the media tells us, that's what these commercials tell us. you got to have our item or you're missing out on a life worth living. What do these items focus on? Well, they focus on happiness and contentment in the here and the now. And those things are very drawing. They're very tempting. They're very enticing. But in light of what I've just said here, every day you and I are one day closer to taking that six-foot dirt nap, the grave, death. And, and, and the question is, what then? What then? An ambitious and young man who seemed to have everything going for him 
he was sitting down with his grandfather after a Thanksgiving meal uh, out in the backyard and kind of hanging off and, you know, uh, waiting for the tryptophan to kind of kick in for his food coma to they both fall asleep and what have you. But the grandpa and he began to talk and grandpa seeing the overly youthful ambitions and, and the, the overconfidence of his grandson. The grandfather began to probe a little bit deeper and into the most important things into his grandson's life. And he says, Grandson, you'll be out of college in a matter of time. What then? And the grandson replied, Well, I'm going to go to call. I, you know, after I'm done with college, you know, as I'm in college, you know, I'm, I'm going to be, uh, you know, uh, I'm, I'm studying this. I'm going to probably go back to graduate school, what have you, you know. And, and Grandpa, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm a pretty good baseball player. And, and, and so I'm playing, you know, on our college team. And, and, and so, you know, I think my life's pretty good. I think I might, you know, think things are going pretty good. And the grandfather says, well, what, what then after college? He goes, well, I figure that I'm hoping at least to go to, you know, get drafted, maybe play some pro ball. Um, I don't know. If, if not, well, then I can fall back on a career in finance. That's what I've studied for, grandfather. And, and I've got people that are already, you know, headhunters that are out looking at me and, and, and people that are coming to the college and are, are you know, giving me some enticing offers and what have you. And so that, that's probably what I'll do, pro ball or get a career in finance or something like that. And he says, well, what then, grandson? Well, I don't know. Maybe I'll find a wife, you know. Uh, I've got a girlfriend right now. don't know how serious it is, but, you know, it might turn into something great. Might get married. Might have kids. Might get a house, you know. Probably going to get a house. Well, what then, grandson? Well, I don't know. I mean, I figure that we're going to grow, you know, together. The kids are going to grow up. There's going to be kids' games, kids' school plays, you know. I don't know. Airplane, boat, maybe. I don't know. I might get something like that, you know, with the money that I'm getting, you know. Uh, well, what then, grandson? I don't know. I guess I'll build a nest egg, you know, to retire on. I'll buy that, you know, send the kids off to college. I'll buy that Winnebago and I'll travel the U.S. and move to Sarasota like everybody else does. Grow old. I'll go to Der Dutchman every day so I don't have to cook. What then, grandpa? Or what then, grandson? What then? After that, what then? Well, then either I or my wife will pass away, you know. You know, and if my wife passes away before me, well, then I'll carry on, I, I, I guess. What then? Well, Grandpa, this is kind of weird, but, I mean, I, I'll die. Like, you are going to die. He says, Grandson, that's where I've been trying to get you to. What then? I'll be dead. But what then? Where will you be? What will happen to you? The, the point is here, Paul is dealing with man's what-then condition. And, and it's, it's something that we don't like to consider a whole lot of. What then? What then? What then? In the first seven chapters, Paul presents to the court how a man left to his own, he's destined for a destructive and a devastating end. 
He might think that he's living a free life. He may think that he's got everything that this world has to offer and that it's a wonderful thing. And yet, at the end of his life, when he closes his eyes or closes her eyes for the very last time on this earth, the what then answer will be required. It'll be required. It's required of every one of us. The Bible says it is appointed unto man once to die. And then the judgment. And we will all be required to answer the what then. Paul's dealing with this and he talks about it in through the first uh, seven chapters. He gets here into chapter eight and he talks about, you know, the battle that was going on in his life. Even as a Christian, the battle that was going on when he was trying to do things in his own life, when he was trying to do things in his own strength, when he was trying to do things in his own power and he was failing miserably. Even as a Christian, he was failing miserably. It's not the place that Paul is wanting us to remain at. He was not running to remain there, but he came to the conclusion, he understood that it was in his flesh that nothing good dwelled. And he says that, you know, that, that, that nothing in me, he said in chapter, in chapter 7, he says, I know that in me, that is in my flesh, that nothing good dwells. I, I'm, I'm a wicked man. Left to my own resources, he's saying, I will always choose the wrong way. Eventually, I'll, pull, I'll, I'll choose the wrong way. I'll walk the wrong road. He goes, man, this is like a body of death to me. And, and he's, he's grappling with this issue of how do I get beyond this? It's a frustrating walk. And if you are a Christian for any amount of time and you have been living in that condition, you understand Paul's heart. You understand his desperation here. You understand his depression here. The things that I will to do, those are the things that I don't do. And the things that I will not to do, those are the very things that I practice. A wicked, a wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And then he comes to the conclusion, as we've looked at over the last couple of weeks, I thank God through Jesus Christ. It's through Jesus Christ that I can overcome these things. It's through Jesus Christ that I have overcome these things. Paul's coming to the conclusion that in his flesh he can do nothing. It's in his own strength and in his own power he can do nothing. And, and he had to come to the end of himself. And I'm afraid that there's a lot of us that have yet to come to the end of ourselves. We th still think that if we put a little bit more effort in, God will like us more or he'll love us more or he'll bless us more. If I just do this or if I just do that more, if I read more in my Bible, if I pray more, those are things are good, but they're not the necessary requirement for God to bless you and to love you. God loves you in spite of you. In fact, the Bible says, in while you were still a sinner and lost, that's how God loved you. God loved you so much and he demonstrated that love that he even sent his son to die for you. That's how much God loves you. It was not prompted by anything that you are or anything that you did. It was everything that he did and the way that he looked at you and me. He loved us that much. He said, I'm willing to sacrifice my son in order to give an opportunity to Don Haskins to receive that death, the death of my son on a cross, to pay for Don's sin, 
simply that Don, simply so that Don would have the opportunity to receive that gift, to accept that substitution, that substitutional sacrifice on his behalf, in order to reconcile Don with me, I gave everything that I had, my son. I turned my back on my son on the cross. He cried out to me, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Can you imagine watching your child die, having the power in and of your own self to alleviate that pain, and your child looking at you and saying, why are you not doing something? God did that because he loved you. He turned his back on his son. For upon his son, all of your sin was placed upon his shoulders. And I know sometimes that we can try to sanitize that a bit and we can try to, to you know, broaden that out and say, well, yeah, I mean, it was my sin technically, but I mean, I mean, realistically, it was the sin of the whole world. And so that's a lot of sin. Can I just say, I think, I not think, I believe that the word of God is very clear that if it was only your sin, he would have done the same thing. Being an omniscient God, that means that he knows all things. Being an omnipresent God, that means that he's at all places at all, all at one time. Being an all-powerful God means that an omnipotent God means that he's all-powerful. He's all-powerful. There's no power that's greater than him. He has the ability. I believe that as Jesus was hanging on the cross, think about this. This blew me away. When, when this was actually explained to me one time, and I think I got it, the first time I got it, it blew me away. But to think that 2,000 years ago when Jesus was hanging on that cross and he was there... And he said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. I believe he was thinking about me personally. And you might think, well, that's kind of ambitious. I mean, <laughs> that's pretty prideful, Pastor Don, thinking that God was thinking about you. No, I, I'm thinking he was thinking about me personally. But I also think that he had the ability and that the, the, the ability to be thinking about you personally also. By name. By date. By era that you're living in, by age that you're living in, God was thinking about you on the cross that day. He had the ability to do that. I mean, if God, if God is who he is, we th- who we understand him to be, is that a hard thing for him to know and to see and to consider every single one of us personally on the cross that day? And, 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 and all of a sudden, it took it from this broad brush, wow, it was for the whole world, And it made it very personal to me that, man, that's why Jesus was hanging on a cross for me? I don't know if you've ever really sat down and pondered that, but Jesus was hanging on a cross for you. You. He went there willingly because he knew it was his father's plan. Did he want to go to the cross? He actually said, hey, you know, if there would be any other way for this cup to pass from me, man, I don't want to go to that cross if I don't have to. If there is any other way for Don to be saved, he cried out to his father in the Garden of Gethsemane. He said, if there be any other way for Don to be saved, then, then present that opportunity right now, God, because my father, because I don't want to go to that cross if there's another way. Nevertheless, he said, not my will, but yours be done. You see, there was no other way for you or I to be saved. Personally, 
Not broad stroke, the whole world. Let's fine-tune this thing and say it was for you because it was for you. It was for me. And that's how much God loved you. That he sent his own son to die on a cross for you. That's how much God loves you. That's how much he loves you. In that while you were still in your sin, God looked through that and said, you know what, but I love him. And I'm going to have my son die on a cross simply to give Don an opportunity to accept my path in his life so that he would have reconciliation with me so that he would enter into heaven one day and his sins would be forgiveness forgiven and he would be entered into heaven one day with me. That's how much God loved me. Paul, he says, man, I, I come to this realization that in my flesh, I can't do anything right. In my flesh, I'm weak. In my flesh, I can't, I can't do it. But I've understood this basic principle that is so deep and so hard to understand, and yet it's so magnificent when you capture the reality of the point, and that is, I don't make myself righteous, Jesus does. I never made myself righteous, I just accepted his righteousness upon me. And in so doing... He, it's his righteousness that is being seen, not the good that I do or not even the bad that I do. It's what he has placed upon me. And that's why the, many pastors, many theologians will say, this is a dangerous passage to preach. Why? Because you're basically giving people the license to go out and sin all they want because they're already forgiven. They're already seen by God as holy. And yet Paul, Paul answered that question, didn't he? Romans chapter 6, he says, shall we continue to sin that grace shall abound? Absolutely not. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying if you are his, then live for him. That's the way we do it. That's the way a relationship is. So continue to live for the Lord. But know that it's not you that is going to save you. It's not you that is, is, is able to maintain your salvation. You can't do that. It's a work of the Holy Spirit. And Paul comes to that crescendo of chapter 8, verse 1. He goes, I understand it now. There's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. That includes me and that includes you as a Christian. It's not my goodness. It's his goodness. It's him that I find myself acceptable before the Father. Not my deeds. It's him. It's him. It's awesome. Paul gets to that point and he's just going, man, that's awesome. But then he goes on and he begins to share with us, as we have just read, the life and, and kind of what it looks like of Romans chapter 7, his struggle that he had back there, he begins to kind of put flesh on it to show us how that struggle that he had was, was he struggled with that, 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 that issue because of what he's sharing here in chapter 8. He says in, in verse 1, he goes, there's therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Now, 
There's two words here that I'm going to look at pretty much for the rest of our time together. The first word is flesh. The first word is flesh. He says, there's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Look at verse 2. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ has made us free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, and that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. He condemned sin in the flesh that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh, they set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. That's what they set their minds on. They set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind, the fleshly mind is enmity, it's at war against God. For it is not subject to the law of God, nor is indeed can be. So then, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. And then he brings this thing in for you and I as Christians. He says, but you are not in the flesh, but you're in the the spirit, if indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. And you have to ask yourself a question right there. At that moment, you have to ask yourself, Is the Spirit of God indwelling me? Am I a Christian? If you are, Paul's saying, you're not in the flesh then. You're in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone doesn't have the Spirit of of Christ, he's not his. He's saying, if you don't have the Spirit of God in you, you're, you're not even saved. You're going to hell. There's no hope for you apart from Christ and his substitutionary death on the Christ, on the cross. He says, if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the spirit of him, this is the Holy Spirit of Jesus, uh, uh, the spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. Think about that. The same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is the same spirit that is residing in the heart of a Christian, in the heart of you and I. It's not a different spirit. It's not a, oh, well, that's, you know, version one. We're on version 20,014. It's not a different version. It's the same spirit. It's the same plan. It's the same purpose. It's the same heart. It's the same God. He dwells in us. How often do we think that God's not powerful enough to get us through something. Wait a minute. He raised Jesus from the dead for goodness sakes. He's not powerful enough to help you? Get a job? Pay a bill? Fix a relationship? Abandon an addiction in your life? What? He's not that powerful? He can raise Jesus from the dead, but this addiction is just way too strong for him. How big's your God? Your view of God must be really, really, really small. Paul's saying, no way, man. 
Don't look at God that way. He says, listen, if the Spirit of Him, if the Spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal body through His Spirit who dwells in you. Therefore, brethren, we're not debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. We don't have to live in the flesh anymore, is what Paul's saying. You don't have to live in the flesh anymore. We're no longer in debt to flesh, to live in flesh, because we've been set free through Jesus Christ. When the Holy Spirit has taken up residence in our heart, He set us free. He broke the chains that held us to this world, and He set us free. For if you live according to the flesh, Paul says, you're going to die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. Now, we're looking at flesh. Flesh. Flesh, the word flesh in the Greek is sarx. S-A-R-X. It just sounds just like it. Sarx. Literally, that means the flesh of a living creature in, a, in distinction from that of a dead one, which in the Greek is krios, krios. So sarx is that of a living flesh, living meat, whereas krios is that of a dead meat. Krios, or, or better, dead meat or flesh, is the term that we use, for instance, when we're speaking of the meat that we eat. Romans chapter fourteen twenty one talks about it. Paul writes, he says, it's neither good to eat meat or creos, nor drink wine, nor do anything by which your brother stumbles or is offended or is made weak. Again, in 1 Corinthians 8, 13, it says, therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never again eat creos, meat, dead flesh, lest I make my brother stumble. Last night... I grilled up some mighty fine cow creos for Lynette, Nathan, and I. And then I bought this Gorton's or Gordon's box of prepared creos scampi that I just had to heat in a skillet, you know, coupled that with a little shoe peg corn, you know, a nice baked potato with sour cream and chives. Nom, nom, nom. It was good. That cow creos was delicious. Dead meat. But Sarks is a living flesh. It's different from dead flesh or Krios. Sarks speaks, speaks of the living flesh of our bodies. In fact, I'd hope, listen, that you'd call authorities on me if I came in here and said that I cooked up some mighty fine Sarks for my family last night. That would be gross. That would be wrong. You don't cook up live meat. Sarks is the term that is going to be used throughout, our, throughout this study. It's the word that is being used that Paul is over and over and over again referring to. Sarks is that flesh which will cry loudest to us on a day-by-day, moment-by-moment basis saying, Feed me, satisfy me, fulfill me. Sarks is that part of us that attempts to dominate our minds to dictate to us what and how we will live our life from one moment to another. The flesh screams at us to attend to its needs at once. 
Now, there's not a verbal, I, I, hopefully, I mean, hopefully you don't have a verbal conversation with your flesh. If you have a, you know, if you and your flesh speak back and forth, well, I think they have a nice little round padded room for us. Yeah. Here's the thing. But it's that inside, that inner voice that you hear, that sarks, that flesh, that screams to you, attend to its, to, that screams at you to attend to its needs at once. Listen, if you don't click on the next page of that website right now, all day long, I will make you not stop thinking about what was on that next page. If you don't stop and buy that blouse right now, you're going to see it on Brenda in accounts receivable within a week. But if you get it right now, you can wear it tomorrow and she'll see in it and she won't buy it. Do it. Get it. Buy it. I don't have any money. So put it on Put it on, on a charge card. You can pay it later. But I didn't have enough money last month to pay my, my credit card bill. Yeah, it'll, we'll make it up somewhere. Buy that blouse. The flesh justifies itself... Uh, justifies its reasons for satisfying itself. You know, just... Do you identify with this? Just eat those last four donuts in the box, and then the donuts will be gone, and you won't have to be thinking about them anymore. Ever happen to any of you guys that way? They'll be gone. You don't have to struggle with that thought anymore, and there won't be any more temptation. Right? Well, it kind of makes sense. Give me those maple bars now. You know, you just pour them into your mouth. Well, I don't struggle with it anymore. Well, no, you ate it. Your flesh dominated you. Turn with me to Proverbs. Go left, way left. Once you hit Psalms, hang a right, and you'll see Proverbs. But go to Proverbs chapter 7. Proverbs chapter 7. The Proverbs are filled with example after example of what it means to give in to the temptation of the flesh or to fulfill the desires of the flesh. Of the many examples that we see in Proverbs, I believe that this one kind of bears the weight and the dangers of of being led by your flesh and the ultimate consequences of allowing your flesh to dominate. Proverbs was written from Solomon to his son. He's trying to pass on a legacy. He's trying to pass on wisdom back to his kids. And he's, he's saying to his son, My son, keep my words. Treasure my commands within you in verse 1. Keep my commands and live. And I'm, I'm not going to make really any expository, you know, detailed explanation of much of this passage because I want to just read it and let you see flesh at work. My son, keep my words. Treasure my commands within you. Keep my commands and live, my son. My law as the apple of your eye. Bind them on your fingers. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Say to wisdom, you're my sister and call understanding your nearest kin that they may keep you from the immoral woman from the seductress who flatters with her words. For at the window of my house, I looked through my lattice and I saw the simple. I perceived among the the youths 
a young man, devoid of understanding, passing along the street near her corner. He took the path to her house in the twilight, in the evening, in the black and dark night. And there a woman met him with the attire of a harlot and a crafty heart. She was loud and rebellious. Her feet would not stay at home. At times she was outside, at times in the open square, lurking at every corner. And so she caught him and she kissed him. With an impudent face, she said to him, I have peace offerings with me. Now, here's the spiritual. Here's the spiritual. I've, I've, I've already secured my offerings to the Lord to have forgiveness for what we're about to do. Is that sin? I'm gonna, I've already got everything I need to reconcile with God. Come on, come on. That's what she's saying. Today I've even paid my vows, and so I came out to meet you. I, God and I are perfect. We're doing good together. And so it's a spiritual thing. So I came out to meet you diligently to seek your face. Well, she didn't know anything about this kid until she saw him in the street. She didn't come out to find him. She came out to find somebody that she could kill, basically. She says, and I diligently came out to seek your face, and I found you. I've spread my bed with tapestry colored coverings of Egyptian linen. I have perfumed my bed with myrrh and aloes and cinnamon. Come, let us take our fill of love until morning. Let us delight ourselves with love, for my husband is not at home. He has gone on a long journey, and he has taken a bag of money with him. He'll come home on the appointed day. In other words, he's going to be gone for a long time because he's got a lot of money, and he's going to have a great time out there on the road. And while he's having a great time out there on the road, we're going to have a great time here at home in his bed. With her enticing speech, she caused him to yield. With her flattering lips, she seduced him. Immediately, he went after her as an... Listen, listen to the explanation. Listen to the description of what happens when we fall into and we give in to the deeds of our flesh. We give in to the temptations that our flesh is sitting there screaming at us to do. Go ahead and do it. We've already got God covered. The peace offerings, she already made her vows. You can do the same thing. Everything's going to be good. God's going to be good with this. Somehow, sin, flesh, justifies why you can get into the sin you're going to get into. I don't know if that resonates with anybody, but I know it sure does with me. With her enticing speech, she caused him to yield. With her flattering lips, she seduced him. Immediately, he went after her as an ox goes to the slaughter or as the fool to the correction of the stocks until an arrow struck his liver. As a bird hastens to the snare, he didn't even know that it would take his life. Now therefore, listen to me, my children. Pay attention to the words of my mouth. Do not let your heart turn aside to her ways. Do not stray into her paths, for she has cast down many wounded. And all who were slain, listen, all who were slain by her, and I have this double underlined, were strong men. They thought that they could handle this kind of stuff. They thought that they were able to do it. But flesh justified their reason for falling into sin and off they went and the strong men fell. Her house is the way to hell, descending to the chambers of death. Listen, I know that as we read this, it's speaking of an adulterous sin. 
But I have to ask this question. Isn't every sin adulterous? Have you ever thought about that? Isn't every sin adulterous? Each and every time that I choose right or or wrong over right, each and every time that I choose wrong over right, I am in effect committing spiritual adultery on God. When we come to God, we lay our lives down before Him to do with as He pleases. When we when we cannot come to we cannot come to God and continue in sin. We've already established that point in Romans chapter six verse one, right? So we continue to sin the grace mount abound? Absolutely not, Paul says. We can't do that. We have established the fact that when we came to Christ, we died to Mr. Love who we were married to, thereby affording ourselves the opportunity to be married to another. And the other that we were married to, Mr. Love, Jesus Christ, who became our Savior, He gave us life. Where all that we used to have was death when we were married to Mr. Law. For if you live by the law, you'll die by the law. When we were married to Christ, we've been set free. We don't have to fall into this. And we don't have to seek you know, this adulterous affair with the world. And again, yes, this, song, this uh, proverb speaks of an adulterous sexual affair. But here's the thing. We are all, when we sin, when we walk in sin, when we walk according to the deeds of the flesh, we're committing adultery with the world. We're committing adultery on, in the eyes of the Lord. We're sitting there and we recognize, I'm not, I shouldn't be doing this, but I'm going to do it anyways. And so the flesh, or sarks, is that what, is, is that what Paul will differentiate here in our passage from what we should not be so focused on, the flesh, sarks, to what we should be focused on, and that is the Spirit. And that's where we move into the Spirit. Back into Romans chapter 8. The word Spirit there that is spoken over 20 times in this passage is the word, the Greek word, pneuma, which is spelled P-N-E-U-M-A, but it's pronounced pneuma, which literally means to breathe. Uh, breath that comes out of the nostrils, a, a breathing or a blast or a spirit or a breath of his mouth. spoke. It, it also is spoken of the destroying power of God by the breath of his mouth, the destroying power of, of God's mouth. It's, it speaks of a vital breath, a breath of life. But this nema, this spirit, the vital, it's the vital spirit or life. It's the principle of life residing in a man or a woman. It's the breath breathed by God into a man. And again, returning back to God, the spiritual, it's the spiritual entity in a man. Here's the point. Listen. You remember, it kind of elicits just a remembrance of, you remember, I think it was in John chapter 20, where Jesus, he met with the disciples after he had risen from the dead. And they were kind of freaked out when he came and he saw them. And it says, and he breathed on them and he said, receive the Holy Spirit. I believe that when Jesus says, when he breathes on a person and he says, receive the Holy Spirit, I'm just going to go out on a limb here and I'm going to say they probably received the Holy Spirit because the breath of God just went into their lungs, right? Into their spirit. 
This is this Nema that we're talking about. The spirit of man gives life to the body. The Bible said Jesus talks about in John chapter 6, verse 63. The spirit of man gives life to the body. And so my words are spirit and life to the soul. Here's the thing. It's God's words breathed in us. It's this rational spirit. It's the mind. It's the element of life. And just so you understand, the antonym, the direct opposite of sarks is nema. It's the absolute opposite. Flesh and spirit, they're at enmity with one another. They're battling one with another. I don't have time to go into that there is a distinction between body, soul, and spirit, but there is. The Bible makes a clear distinction that there is a soul and there is a spirit. The spirit is man's immaterial nature, which enables him to communicate with God, who is also spirit. 1 Corinthians 2.14 says that the natural man receives not the things of the spirit of God because they are spiritually discerned. But what is translated natural man is a Greek word, which is psuchikos, which literally is the psychic or the soulish meaning, meaning the soul of a man. The soul is the aspect of his immaterial nature that makes him aware of his body and his natural physical environment. The difference between soul and spirit is not one of substance, but of operation. Man's immaterial aspect is represented in Scripture by the single terms pneuma, spirit, psyche, soul, and both of them, or both of them together. So all of this, flesh, spirit, they're battling one with another. Your life, my life, is being ruled by either sarks or nema, flesh or spirit. The difference between the two is that one is ruled by a basic animal instinct, the flesh, whereas the other spirit is ruled by God. If you're being ruled by the fleshly animal instinct, listen, just not to get crude or anything, but just watch a dog to see what you look like in the heavenly realm. I don't know if you just understood what I just said. Look at a dog... And watch animal instinct kick in. I don't know when the last time was that I ran up to greet somebody and sniffed their butt. I really don't know the last time that I just went, I've got to go to the bathroom right now. And just let it go. And there are others that we could talk about, but I'm just not going to do it. Well, might as well. <laughs> no, 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 no. <laughs> yeah. I don't know the last time that I saw a garbage can, I said, wow, dinner. And just ripped open a bag and just started going at it. It's just gross. But in the heavenly realm, when we're operating, when we're living and we're walking in the spirit, that's exactly what we're doing. The heavenly realm is that it's like in heaven, they're going, wow, it's just kind of like acting like a dog. Just being ruled by the passions and the desires of his, of his basic animal instinct. Once the poop, he poops. 
wants to eat, he eats. Wants to sniff, he sniffs. There's no spiritual morality whatsoever. He just does what feels good to him. If you're ruled by the Spirit, however, you wake up each day relinquishing your life to God to do as He pleases. One way of life is completely distinct from the other. The way of our fleshly life, you depend on you to make it from one day to the other, whereas the way of the spiritual life, you depend on the Holy Spirit who already sees the path ahead of you, who has scripted a perfect plan for your day, who loves and cares for you, who will always be there. He will never leave, abandon, or forsake you. He knows the way of the spiritual life. You depend on the Holy Spirit to lead, guide, and direct your path It's the path that he's already traveled. He sees it. He knows where to go. He knows what rocks to step on. He knows what's firm foundation and what is shifting sand. And yet, we so oftentimes back off and we we lean on our own instincts. One of the things that, one of the things, you know, being a pilot had helped me with to understand this kind of a mentality, this kind of a mindset of being ruled by the flesh or being ruled by the spirit is when I began to learn how to fly by instruments. That's how you fly into clouds and you fly into bad weather and what have you. You can't see the ground. You have no bearings from which to, to gauge if your airplane's flying right side up or, or upside down or sideways or flying into a mountain or whatever. And so as I learned how to fly on instruments, they call that IFR, instrument flight rules, or other people say I follow roads. But, but it is, as you look at the instrument flight rules, as you're learning, one of the ways that they teach you is you have an instructor in there and they give you a hood or they give you these glasses that are sandblasted and you can only see just through this part. You can't see out. All you can see is just the instrument panel in front of you. And you are now uh, commissioned to keep your airplane flying in the direction that it's supposed to go. Make your turns where you're supposed to make your turns. Stay on your various Victor Airways that you're supposed to be on and stay at your altitude you're supposed to stay on and not crash. That's what you're supposed to do. All without looking outside. And that to you might go, well, that's not hard. People do it all the time. Can I just tell you that I, I had a friend of mine that I flew up to San Jose one time. He's now a captain on a, a 737 with Alaskan Airlines. He just blows me out of the water with his experience. But before he started flying, his name is Alan. Alan Neal. I'll send him this tape. Tape, CD, MP3, whatever. He, uh, I, was, I was going up to San Jose one time, and I had to fly through the weather in California. And as I'm coming in through the clouds... I have my David Clark headsets on. I have an intercom system in the airplane that I'm flying in, and he's flying in. It's just the two of us, and we're flying in. We're coming in, and we get into the weather, and it's bumpy. When you kind of get into clouds, it gets a little bumpier. You can't see the ground. You can't see this. You can't see anything. All you see is just nothing in the in in outside. So you just stop looking outside. You just look at your instruments, and you follow what your instruments are telling you to do. And Alan, as we got into the weather. He started speaking into his intercom, and I've got to pay attention to what you know the tower is talking about and hearing everything that's going on on the radio. And he's going, do you know what you're doing? I mean, I can't see anything outside. I mean, how do you know if you're flying straight up? How do you know what, where, where is there, are there other airplanes up here? How do you know? And I just, I just, as I'm flying, you never make sudden movements in an airplane when you're flying under the weather because what happens is that you make a sudden movement and something messes with your inner ear and it kind of messes you up and gives you a little vertigo. 
So I just reached over and grabbed a hold of his microphone and I just put it above his head. He didn't even notice. He just kept talking. Because it's freaky the first time you go in when you know the person that's flying an IFR and you're sitting next to him and you go, wow, how much do I trust this guy? Well, he had to trust me with his life. But can I tell you something about instruments? As you're flying, there's a time where your body, I don't care who you are, you're not impervious to vertigo. And as you're flying, there are times when you're flying in the airplane where your instruments are saying you're flying straight and level, but your body is saying, I am making a turn. And for the life of me, I'm making a turn. I believe it's the reason that John F. Kennedy was killed in his own, uh, John F. Kennedy Jr. was killed in his little airplane because he lost the horizon. He didn't have an instrument rating. And he entered into a little graveyard spiral and spiraled down into the ocean and killed he and his wife and his wife's sister because he didn't have the ability to follow his instruments. He followed his instincts and it killed him. And the thing is, is that when I'm flying IFR and I'm flying, there are times where I just want to turn my head and go, this makes me feel satisfied because I think this is the way the airplane is flying. But you know what? The instruments tell me otherwise. And if I trust me, I will die. But if I trust the instruments, I will live and I'll be on the ground. And it's the weirdest thing. You have to overcome your instincts. You have to overcome your feelings. You have to overcome your flesh. And it really made so much sense to me. This passage begins to make so much sense to me because when I think I know what I'm supposed to do, my feelings can lie to me. Your feelings can lie to you. Your emotions can lie to you. But the word of God will never lie. It'll never lie. It's truth. It's right. It's perfect. So you're either going to be dominated by the flesh or you're going to be dominated by the spirit. So it's your choice. It's your way or it's God's way. It's the flesh or the spirit. Paul makes the distinction to detail a life of victory, of joy, of purpose, of substance, of value, one that will matter throughout eternity. There's a story of an Eskimo fisherman who came to town every Saturday afternoon. He always brought his two dogs with him. One was white, the other was black. He had taught them to fight on command. And so every Saturday afternoon, they had dog fights in the town square. The people would gather and these two dogs would fight and the fishermen would take bets. On one Saturday, the black dog would win. Another Saturday, the white dog would win. But the fishermen... The fisherman always won. Surprise, right? His friends began to ask him how he did it, and he finally broke down and he said, I starve the one for one week and I feed the other. The one I feed always wins because he's stronger. This illustration speaks volumes to us because you and I have two dogs that are in us. We have the dog of the flesh and we've got the dog of the spirit. And we've got a desire. The one that we that we feed the most, that's the one that is going to dominate your life. If you if you feed the flesh, you're going to be dominated by the flesh. If you feed the spirit and you wake up and you say, "Lord, today is your day. Today I'm going to live for you." You know what? Then then the spirit is going to win far more than your flesh is going to win because you have dedicated your heart and your life over to the spirit, seeking his ability seeking his power, seeking his strength to walk this life. 
I'm going to finish with this. Listen, this past week, every one of us in this room, if I'm sure probably all of us have heard, we've been shocked to see the national news, national news set its crosshairs here in the Sarasota-Bradenton area. The tragic news of this young mother of six killed by her estranged husband, her neighbor who also was a mother, she was killed. And then this guy drove to the church where his wife worked, Bayshore Baptist Church here in Bradenton, and killed the senior pastor, Trip Battle. And, and it's a devastating story. I, I can't even imagine what that church is going through today. That church, for the very first time this Sunday, is coming together and their senior pastor isn't going to be there because he got shot and killed and murdered because he was just trying to follow the Lord. <laughs> you got one crazy guy that goes out there and doesn't like what's being said, doesn't like what is God is doing in somebody else's life, and so he goes out and tries to end it all for everyone. Now, of course, we don't all know the reasons why. We know one thing, it's sin, it's flesh. Somewhere along the line, he said, my flesh is right. I'm going to follow the flesh. I'm going to go by my basic animal instincts. And right now, you offended me, I'm hurting you. If I'm a dog and I'm backed into a corner, I'm going to bite you, I'm going to eat you. If I'm not even backed into a corner and I just feel like I want to bite you and eat you, I'm going to do it. That's my dog. As I prayed and I I, I grieved for this senseless loss of life, much probably like you guys did this last week, I was once again faced with this realization that not one of us is guaranteed even one more day. As I considered and allowed my mind to wander in the woods of the what-ifs, I thought about my my own life. I thought about my wife's life. I thought about my son's life. I thought about your life. I thought of my pastor, Pastor Chuck Smith, who passed away a, a year ago, October 3rd. I thought about my mom who passed away in Thanksgiving on Thanksgiving Day 2006. I thought of our president. I thought of the ladies right over here in the barbershop next door. I thought of the men and women who have lived and died and I thought of the men who and, and children and women who are still alive. Do you know what I was thinking about? I was thinking about why my life Why your life? Why President Obama's life? Why Pastor Chuck's life? Why why a businessman's life? Why anyone's life? In light of my study for this passage, my life, your life, our lives at the end, the question is, what then? So what? What then? What was our life meant for? What was our life here for? Was it about the phone? I forgive Bert for the Samsung. That's not anything. He'll come back one day. <laughs> I, 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 I look at it and I see it's, it's far more important than Alabama probably beating the Seminoles here in a couple weeks. Or not. It's far more important than a national championship game. Far more important than a Super Bowl far more important than the job you have, 
far more important than the house you have, far more important than the clothes you wear. Life is far more important than the things that we so oftentimes rise above what really matters in life. Gang, today was a day where I hope that you have understood that you got a couple dogs that are fighting inside of you. The question you have to answer is which dog's winning? Can I just submit to you something that is maybe offensive and abrasive? The reason why the dog of flesh is winning is because you feed it and you continue to feed it. I'm going to just submit to you this one thing. I'm not even going to say tomorrow. I'm going to say today, even right now as we pray. I should do something pretty wild. I should get serious. Why don't we get serious about our Christian life right now? Why don't we look at the what thens? Consider our own what then. I think of like a Pastor Chuck. Why your life? Well, you know what? I look at it and I go, you know what? Life well lived. Good job, Pastor. Did you fall? Did you slip? Did you mess up along the way? Of course he did. Every one of us do. But how many people are in heaven today for eternity because what his life represented in heaven and those who rejected and then I have to ask the question and and, and listen this isn't a slam on just our president I'm saying it's about anything any profession but I have to think at the end of our president Obama's life What difference did he make? How many lives? 10,000 times 10,000 years from now did he really truly affect for the Lord? Do you see that the life that you and I have, regardless of what job you are in, regardless of what profession you're in, regardless of what house you live in, regardless of anything, God has given you the special tool called the gospel it's life it's eternal life he gives us what 86 90 years upon the face of the earth if we're lucky or unlucky depending on your position but therein dictates the rest of eternity where's your life matter right now I would suggest and submit to you that your life as a Christian lived out according to the power, direction, leading, and guiding of the Holy Spirit is more powerful than a brain surgeon that doesn't know who the Lord is. He might save a life for a few years, but that's all. A president might lead a country for a short season, but that's all. But the words that God has entrusted to you and I in the gospel 
is something that will affect someone's life. Not for four years, not for eight years, but for all eternity. Let's not handle it unwisely any longer. Let's feed the Spirit. Amen? Does that make sense? Let's feed the Spirit. Being empowered by the Spirit. And let's just watch what God can do through our lives. Amen? Father, thank you so much for today. Bless this time. Forgive us, Lord, where we have allowed the flesh to become so great in our life. Maybe there's some here today that have looked at their life today and this has meant to them volumes and they've, they've seen that, man, they have strayed so far away from you and they, they, they see that they've strayed and they've been feeding the flesh far too much. Feeding the flesh even one morsel is too much. But they, we, I, have been feeding the flesh, not just the morsel, but man, seven course meals with desserts. And then we wonder why we struggle so. Today there may be those here that just, you want to get back on track. Know this, that the Lord's there. He's not there to condemn you. Remember, Paul said, there's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. I'm not here to condemn you. I'm here to give you life. I'm here to forgive. I'm here to restore. I'm here to empower. I'm here to give you purpose for the, for the rest of your life. You have no more days behind you. You only have what is in front of you. And I want to affect those days through you. Will you allow me? The Lord would be saying to every single one of us. If that's you, say, yes, Lord, I want that. God, forgive me of my flesh. Forgive me of my willingness to so easily cave into my flesh and to feed my flesh. Lord, forgive me. By the power of your Holy Spirit, help me to to sacrifice my life over to you once again. Just give it to you. Surrender. Relinquish my rights. Relinquish my control. Relinquish all that I continue to hold my hand on with a death grip on my life. It's getting me nowhere but in circles. I hand the reins over to you, Lord, again. Maybe for some of you in this room, some of us in this room, you go, again, this is probably the 50,000th time I've done it. That's okay. The Lord will take them back just as easy as he took them back the first time you ever did it. And to do it with the same passion and love, grace, and acceptance that he did the very first time. Lord, we want all that you have for us. Make our lives count for the remaining days that we have. We don't know how many days we have, but make them count. Make them count for you. You handpicked us. You handpicked me. You handpicked each and every single Christian in this room to represent you in this day. Lord, by the power of your Holy Spirit, let us understand what that looks like in our own life. It's going to be different than anybody else in this room. It may not be from behind a pulpit. It may be in my office desk chair, wherever it may be. But Lord, show me how I can rightly represent you by the power of your Holy Spirit. 
doing it not out of obligation, but out of absolute gratitude because, God, you saved my life. You gave me a future. You gave me a hope. You gave me peace. You took away the shame. You took away the the burden and the chains that were tying me down and weighing me down. You gave me life. And now, Lord, for the rest of my life, Lord, I want to give it to you. And I want you to do with my life as you so choose. Help me to have a very loose grip anytime my hands come close to those reins of my life. God, let me quickly give them back to you. I want to live by the Holy Spirit from this day forward. I can, I, can, I can offer this moment to you, Lord. I, I'm so fickle. I know I am so fickle and I am so fleshly that in, in 10 minutes I might rip it back. But Lord, for this moment, I give it to you. And then Lord, help me in 10 minutes to not, not take them back. I want to give them to you and I want you to keep them for the rest of my life. And Lord, when I begin to wrestle them back, God, remind me of this moment and bring me back to that place right freely give you back the reins of my life and say, Lord, do with me as you want. I'm sorry I've taken the reins again. Man, it's so tough. But it's so freeing to know that I can run to you and seek forgiveness immediately. Be restored absolutely at that very moment to continue on my life from where I left off. So Lord, use us. By the power of your Holy Spirit, not in our strength. God, we can't do it. We've already tried it. We fail. But Lord, in you, help us to live with a smile on our face, God. Help us to live with a sparkle in our eye. Help us, the Lord, to live with a spring in our step as we live this life for you because, Lord, you set us free. As the Son set us free, he, we're going to be free indeed. Now, Lord, you want to do that in others. Take us out there and do this with others, God. Let them see you, Jesus, in us whether it be through word, whether it be through action. I pray it's through both. In Jesus' name, amen.